The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business on News Talk. I'm going to be talking in a second to Mark Hennessy, Ireland and Britain editor of the Irish Times. Good morning, Mark. It is Good nice morning. to see you. Uh, first, Tom Dunn, superfan, Barbara Scully is with us, also author and bo- broadcaster. You were you were standing at the stage door screaming during the week. <laughs> yeah, like um, they were on the Late Late Show. This is Tom Dunn, as we know, uh, who um, singer with Something Happens. Fiat No Brain on. Also, also presenter on News Talk. Also presenter on News Talk. <laughs> uh, Fiat No Brain on of the Hot House Flowers and another guy who I'd not heard of before called Alan Connor who was on keyboards. And I saw them on the Late Late Show some months back and I bought tickets to see them in Dunleary and then as you do you buy tickets so long in advance I kind of forgot about it until the last minute and then went oh I'm going to the pavilion so I didn't have any expectation one way or the other I'd kind of forgotten I thought it was amazing they were brilliant it was like your man Don is good is he? He's brilliant but not only was he brilliant at we know he can sing and he can play his his old guitar Uh, the musicality was just off the charts but also he was telling great stories so it was like actually being at a kind of a house party with a great session going on that you were party to with really talented musicians and a couple of good stories. So I would say to anybody if they're coming to a town near you you could do far worse. It was wonderful. And the I should make clear that we terrific. haven't teed you and up to do this no, and, and no check was crossed out. I am not getting paid by, by Tom or Fiegner or anybody although I'm always open to that <laughs> but I'm not no it was absolutely brilliant so yeah I just want to yeah. The reason we are talking about music, of course, is the passing of Shane McGowan and Mark, loads of, of coverage. Um, your own colleague, Frank McNally in the Irish Time, rainy day in Nina, but a rousing send off for Shane. Yeah. Lovely piece. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's raised the bar uh, on every Irish funeral that would ever be <laughs> held in future. Um, and Do you I, remember there was there was a scandal a while, not a scandal, but there was a load of stuff about whether or not eulogies were allowed and would you only be able to say a pair yes. of yeah. I was watching going, he has at least five eulogies already and this thing is three hours long. Yeah, that must have gone out yeah. with the flood, I assume now. Eulogies well, are all I, I think different parish priests take uh, different views and some of them uh, can be quite strict on, on the subject and some of them are a bit more easy. Uh, I suspect in Nina, everything was done with uh, absolute agreement. I'm sure there wasn't any issue about about getting problems. But it, 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 it does, um, I mean, it was a remarkable send-off. There, there's no doubt about that. Um, you could argue that perhaps there was a little too much focus on drink and drugs uh, at the funeral, um, given that there was so much else to his life. Uh, and at the end of the day, at times like that, people normally tend to uh, concentrate on the positives, you know. Yes, and, and while we know it was an aspect, you don't want it to be the defining aspect of somebody's life or character. No, not really, you know. Not really. Uh, the, the other thing that struck me, though, just as you said about, you know, the, the eulogies and, and the Catholic Church. I mean, I was watching it on the news last night. And again, I unfortunately have organised two funerals in the last two years. And I wish I'd known that the whole sacred music thing wasn't a thing anymore. I mean, I remember being told you can't really, you know, you can't really have anything other than sacred approved music. And there's this rowdy, unedited version of Fairy Tale in New York. And I, as I was watching, I was saying they must have changed the words in order to get away with this. Yeah. And it was the original version, which is great. I absolutely applaud. But not what you would expect from the altar. And people climbing over the seats to get up and dance. Like I was like, I, this is, this but, is but great. But on that point, I, I, I would think that there's probably a few hundred parish priests <laughs> around the country with it. their head in their hand <laughs> over on, the breakfast gosh. table wondering what <laughs> are people going to demand of me next week and actually quite seriously that, I say you know, which I'd say is a legacy he would be delighted to buy yes, he, absolutely. probably, yeah, probably absolutely. but maybe a slightly unintended one <laughs> 
one of the I, things that I had missed, by the way, that is in coverage, I think the, the uh, Independent, I think is the paper that has it, but I had missed it, was um, Shane McGowan's widow in the middle of the eulogy <laughs> telling Johnny Depp that he needed to forgive Amber Heard. I mean, again, sentences you didn't think you would ever say no. while Michael D. Higgins, the president, looks on. <laughs> but that was, I that would was think, a bit, yeah, I mean, yeah. on the nose from Johnny Depp's perspective. It probably was. I mean, it was a little bit bizarre. And again, I think um, what what Victoria Mary was was recounting was that Shane was a great believer in forgiveness, and that he even was urging uh, Johnny Depp to forgive uh, his his former wife, uh, Amber Heard. I have the quote here. He said, "I hope you don't mind me saying this, Johnny, but when when Johnny had a court case involving his ex wife." Shane had a long conversation with you and urged you to forgive Amber. Yep, he thought it was the best thing to do because he believed genuinely in forgiveness and I'm sure you have by now, haven't you? Of course you have, she said. <laughs> History does not record what Johnny's reaction was. I believe I, have I read somewhere else. I read somewhere else last night that there were two women coming back from communion that practically jumped on Johnny Depp's knee to get a selfie with him as well in the middle of the mass. So I'd say Johnny Depp, wherever he is this morning, is going, "What the hell was all that about?" Now I have to say, normally, were we discussing a funeral in this kind of tone, you would say it is grossly disrespectful. Yes. But I think, given the funeral that's in it, it is difficult to discuss it in any other tone because this was an uproarious, well, joyful event. It was an uproarious, joy, joyful event, but by all accounts. And if that was if that if that's what the funeral would look like, you'd wonder what the uh, post-funeral drinks ended up like at four o'clock in the morning. Um, <laughs> it's, it certainly sounded like the makings of a hell of a party. Um, there is probably a serious uh, thing to it, though, that. Um, you know, if you're 12 or 14 and you're watching that, what message do you take away? And if it is that, you know, drink drugs lead you to become kind of an Irish national hero in some way, that perhaps isn't the most positive uh, of legacies. Although or that creative success intrinsically begets that kind of yeah, lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. And, it you know, it does for some people, but it doesn't for a lot of people. I mean, at the end of the day, the lives of the vast majority of, of alcoholics or drug addicts are miserable and short. You know, I mean, he was extraordinarily lucky in, in his talent. He was also extraordinarily lucky in how long he lived, given the lifestyle that he lived. And even then, it does beg the question that I put to Tom, what more creative output might we have got from him and what more years might his life have been? He, although, been yeah, I, I know somebody whose views on this would be more knowledgeable than mine. They make the point that his creativity was such that it was actually directly linked uh, to his alcohol consumption, that stone cold. So he was able to do things with alcohol in him that... He wouldn't have been able but to... But wasn't it Hemingway who sober. said, write drunk and edit sober? And edit sober, yeah. 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 That's move. where I'm going wrong. I've just suddenly realised <laughs> that's what I'm doing You're writing wrong. sober and editing drunk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I must change that. <laughs> there is, of course, a lot of other stuff uh, to discuss. In the front page of the Irish Independent, go away money. This is um, Barbara Supermax boss, uh, Pat Madonna, who has long been a good man for uh, coming out and, and taking things... Um, in hand, particularly he was known for the compensation stuff where he would fight compensation cases that other mm. uh, entities might just pay them to leave them alone. He is saying that he has had what he describes as ransom demands of up to two million quid to withdraw planning objections to his development. If that's true, it is a, 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 an egregious comment on our planning system. Isn't yeah, it? and it made me wonder, again, because of the link with Pat McDonough and his campaigning on uh, compo culture, as it's known, you know, 
is, and I mean, again, coming back to Shane McGowan and, and alcohol and being Irish and everything else, you know, is this something inherent in our character as Irish people that we like to kind of, we like to kind of, you know, work the system or work ways around the system or find ways to kind of screw the system? Um, but this is shocking. Um, so basically, because it took me a while to get my head around this, basically people are objecting to planning developments and then suggesting that an amount of money might make them uh, go away. Which, you know, I mean, that in itself is shocking to think that people would do that. But what I was struck by was if then legislation is brought in as a way of, of, of shutting this down, what is the unintended consequence of that legislation going to have on communities who have a genuine reason to object against planning permission? I have some experience of this. Um, for example, the strategic housing um, uh, legislation that was brought in to, to fast track planning permissions for housing developments. It's now, it's, it, it lapsed, I think, about a year ago. But that was in place for, I don't know, four or five years. And that made it really difficult for communities to object, you know, and have reasonable objections against uh, planning developments because, number one, it bypassed the local authorities and went straight to Board Planola. And secondly, of all, the window during which you could make, and they weren't called objections, they were called observations, which should have told you a lot. Mm. The window was very short. So if you're in a community, it was very difficult to do that. Um, so, you know, this in itself is shocking and apparently it's something that, you know, there is no penalty for at the moment and that people are, you know, holding up developments in the hope of... Well, that's the bit that seems amazing, that people seem to be, according to this and, and other stories we have seen, seem to be able to do this with impunity. Well, they do, but uh, the, the, the situation has changed, uh, as always happens, once uh, some transparency and some light is thrown on it, because now every other developer who's in uh, the business has an encouragement in the wake of this to come forward with uh, uh, stories. And there will be a, probably a huge number of cases that will come forth over the next weeks and months. And it's probably quite likely that we'll find stories going in the other direction, where developers made uh, under counter offers to people to go away. Who so a legitimate objection might be bought out. Exactly, yes. yeah. yeah. And, I thought and there extent... may be some occasions where a legitimate objection could be withdrawn in return for some Yeah, you get into a very amorphous into... area, yeah. don't you? I mean, you know, I, I would have thought a few senior council would have a lot of fun with this over the next uh, while. What's illegal? When is it illegal? What's proper? What's improper? Um, but y you can't have a situation where uh, and just on Barbara's point, I mean, you know, planning is a mess in every country yes. on God's earth. So, you know, we haven't invented any rules. Although, or, sorry, sorry to cut across you, I'll come in afterwards. Mm. Go ahead. No, no. But, I mean, there's clearly issues in terms of the, the legal process, the time in which things take, the uh, ability of Borplanola to fast track cases. So there's all sorts of administrative issues. But the idea that we have uh, a, unique, a unique hold on planning fraud or planning impropriety isn't the case. My although was there are jurisdictions though where they have a rules-based system that effectively says you have a seven and a half foot setback from your boundary line, you have a maximum height of 35 feet, you have a 35 foot gap from the road and within those dimensions have added fill your boots, which I would have thought is a much easier to system to navigate than ours where you're there is no set set of requirements. Yeah, but, but that gets killed. back to, in some ways, the, the kind of the Irish curse in some ways mm. that we neither want the cure nor the disease, you know. <laughs> 
Mm. Because, you know, we'd all say having those freedoms for me is an absolutely brilliant idea, but it's a horrible <laughs> idea for everybody else. Tech saying politicians can give themselves state funerals, but they'll never reach anywhere near the status of Shane McGowan's from yesterday. Another lovely send off for Shane, in particular Sean O'Shea and the area of the mass. But we didn't need to hear all the personal stuff. He deserved a dignified send off. I wonder, I suspect from his perspective, that might have been... Exa- He'd have loved yeah, that. I, would I think he, so. was, he would have absolutely relished it. Now, we are going to be talking in a while in the show about the prospect of an Irish COVID inquiry and what it might hold. This, of course, comes in the wake of the UK COVID inquiry. And you mentioned, Mark, um, senior councils having a field day. I have to say, when I grow up, I want to be your man who is the King's Council who is leading the COVID yeah. inquiry. Well. Let me give you your full title, first of all. So Britain and Ireland editor. So you you have some background in this area. Well, in a previous life, I, I was London editor of the Irish Times. So um, I would have known uh, Johnson in Brussels days, um, decades before. Um, you were unsurprised at the revelations, I take it, therefore. No, I mean, you know, um, Boris, uh, in the eyes of anybody who ever had the misfortune uh, to work with him or to be in proximity with him, is a loathsome human being. Um, oh, I thought he was quite charming personally. He's he, he he's he is charming, but uh, at the at the back of it, um, you know, no, nah. I mean he's he's a contemptible individual, um, and uh, in in every shape or form, and how a man like that rose as high as he did, um, is a, a profound uh, verdict on uh, British uh, political society because uh, he came out of a a, a certain uh, class and has always been treated by different rules. I mean, the most prescient thing ever said about him was his housemaster in, in Eton. You know, this is a fellow who, I think he was 12 when it was written, you know, Boris doesn't believe the rules apply to him. And Although to some extent he proved himself right in that. Well, he did up until the point uh, where he he was, uh, uh, he was eventually got rid of um, and remains a, a toxic element in the British political system. Although it was interesting uh, watching uh, some of the stuff during the week, uh, the way in which this, the story has already moved on, you know. In fact, it's moved on to a bunch of people on his side of the argument of British politics who are even more loathsome than he is, you know. Um, so his ability to uh, to be a, a power broker in British politics, to do a return, all of which he seems to have held some hopes to, would now seem to be uh, 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 very, very unlikely. To Tell me a little bit about that cast of characters, because when you watch the testimony provided by Matt Hancock, when you particularly watch the testimony provided by Dominic Cummins, you look at this and think, how did this set of individuals become the core of power in the UK for so long as they did? Uh, was it evidence that they were as narcissistic and incompetent as the inquiry would seem to now reveal? Was that evident at the time? Um, I, I knew I was in Cummings' um, uh, uh, airspace when he was uh, special advisor to Michael Gove. And, I mean, I wouldn't have, you know, uh, expected that he would have risen to the heights that he did subsequently. I, but he was clearly exceptionally bright and he was clearly exceptionally unpleasant um, on the rare occasions when I had sight of him. Um, uh, Boris uh, is, is a man of extraordinary uh, talents in terms of uh, uh, of uh, his ability to articulate arguments and to put things simply and to put things jocosely. And you know, if you were putting together a dinner table over a couple of bottles of wine, you know, he's the guy who'll be telling. Well, there's a good example of that of because one of the critical things, of course, in the run of the uh, inquiry was the questions around um, excess deaths 
and uh, whether or not the virus was, quote, let rip, which was the allegation that was being made that the PM had been driving that policy. Here's how he handled that. What I'm saying is that this was a phrase in common uh, parlance at the time and, 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 and remains so. Sir Patrick Valence's diary is 273901, page 92. Yes, actually having a discussion, a meeting with the PM about, quote, letting it rip, page... But, I don't wish to be... No. Um, I'm just going to put... Rep- repetitive, uh, but this I, is exactly what you'd expect me to be talking about at, at this stage. Page 245. This is June, 20, June 2020. I'm going to show you all the ones, Mr Johnson, out of fairness... The Prime Minister meeting begins to argue for letting it rip, saying, yes, there will be more casualties, but so be it. They've had a good innings. Good Lord. Is that an extraordinary thing? Yeah. Be, they've had a good innings, they've let them die. Innings, yeah. It's extraordinary. I mean, I, I'm not going to let on that I watched any of this because I find the whole thing so, like, profoundly depressing. My husband is English. Well, he used to be English. Um, <laughs> he's not English. What, did did you not... ring it out of him? No, we're married for 20-something hundred years. And he, he, he has said for all of that time, yeah, I must apply for my Irish citizen. Yeah, I must apply for my Irish citizenship. And we used to always say, Do you know, if a plane gets hijacked, you're much better off having an Irish passport than a British passport. And he was the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brexit happened. Um, and he's totally apolitical. Brexit happened and literally he was filling in the forms and jumping through the 560 million hoops along with trying to find the money to get his Irish citizenship, which he achieved literally just a year ago. And he has since, because we were travelling recently, and we were travelling in a place where it was very important that we were known that we were Irish and not English. We were in Argentina. And um, my husband was the first time, I'm Irish. Yeah, I'm Irish. That's good. You need to sort your accent out. But he doesn't recognise Britain as it is now. And I think that's profoundly sad, even though I'm very glad he's Irish now. He just doesn't recognise it. He just says it's a... And it, it comes back to your point. How did these people get into the positions uh, they did? And that's what will be interesting about all of this when we get over the the horror of the deaths and, and using the kind of language that we just heard from Boris Johnson, is that when history is written... What what will we put this down to? What is what happened to the British people that they elected these people and that they have been so slow to get rid of the Conservative? But see, the party? question that I have in that then is: if you if you look at this as the inquiry and and it isn't getting, it isn't splashed across all of the front page, getting a little bit of attention, but not a whole pile. Every now and then, in moments of boredom, I dig out McCracken and Moriarty and have a reread, and it is amazing how quickly all of that just disappeared from the public mind. Well, it is. But I mean, you know, there are lessons for us in terms of the British inquiry. I mean, there's a lot of criticism in Britain and, you know, some of it coming from partisan Tory sources, admittedly, but some of it coming from uh, from public administrative uh, sources who say that the inquiry is being held in a cack-handed fashion, that it's concentrating too much on the personality and that if you were to investigate the WhatsApp messages of any bunch of people at a time of crisis, there would always be things that would subsequently not look great for any of us. And, you know, you could say that about an editorial meeting in the Irish Times, let alone anything else. But, you know, by the nature of the piece, if people are under pressure and working uh, yes, hard... Yes, there's black humour and there's know, all the rest. All of that. Um, so there's no doubt that, uh, that, 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 that there are issues. But equally, how do you investigate policy unless you investigate personality? Because it's the personalities who dictate... Uh, policies and there was clearly uh, an attitude within Number Ten and, and with Hancock of I know best and you know don't need to talk to the experts and all of this kind of stuff and you know th- 
I, I think we can all we we all need to forgive anybody who was involved uh, in lead roles uh, at that time, wherever they are. Uh, at least for 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 some of the actions. And if you take the case here, uh, for instance, you know we're generally seen to have done reasonably well, pretty well in in most cases. Uh, yes, there were mistakes made. Yes, there would be things that would be uncovered by a tribunal. Or an inquiry. But if it is an inquiry, then it has to be one where everybody isn't getting legaled up to the nines and where we're here well, four years We later. will in a while talk about the, the possibilities of a, an Irish COVID inquiry and what it might consist of. The one thing, though, I, I, that I, I am struck by is the sort of almost the Orwellian nature of what the testimony is revealing. The, the pigs in the big house deciding that there are different rules that apply to them than everybody else. I mean, whether it be the partying, whether it be the socialising, the, the, the departures to Barnard Castle an extraordinary sense of we are the elite and better than you. Yeah, that kind of goes with the territory, though. I mean, if you're dealing with that class and it's not representative of the UK or England as a whole, and it's not even representative of everybody who goes to public school in Britain by any manner or means, but there is a clique within that uh, public school elite uh, who do think that the rules are for the little people and they don't apply to them. And that feeds through. Um, a text saying, my husband is British. Boris Johnson is not typical of the British. I am reading out the caps as they are typed. <laughs> Stop the media hype. I don't think anybody no, was we, suggesting that he typified them in any way, shape or form. Um, one thing before we wrap up. COP28 is currently uh, going on. We are in the middle of the most defining crisis that humanity can possibly face. And looking at the pages of the uh, papers, it makes no front page. Why does nobody care? Yeah, I mean, I, this again is is profoundly depressing. Um, and even Ash, I mean, I think Mary Robinson spoke uh, very well at this. And I mean, I, I love I love the way she is very kind of measured and very uh, clear in what she's saying. But she has said that nothing less than uh, a commitment to end fossil fuels is acceptable and that this is the last COP summit where we can actively make a change and save the planet from going on fire. Um, And I mean, even today, you know, we've gone here from having really cold temperatures, which are, you know, unusual here, really cold. And now we have a storm. So it's either in the winter, really cold, or we have a storm with a lot of wind and a lot of flooding. Um, And I don't understand. why does it not get purchased? Why does nobody actually really care? I don't don't know. Are we all in denial? it's, it's, It's the nature of the human condition. If you're not going to be hung in the morning. You worry about something else in the meantime. Um, and I, when they're doing the disaster movie uh, on climate in circa 2040, um, they'll probably be taking uh, clips from uh, news bulletins all over the world that haven't been focusing on COP28 um, uh, at this time. The reality is, and this is the truth that no politician is able to say, that if we're to tackle climate change in the West and we're the ones Mm. collectively who created it and Ireland to a slightly lesser extent than the others because we got to the industrial table uh, later in the game but we've been we've been catching up it means that we cannot live our lives in the way we did in the past and as John Claude Juncker said during the the economic crisis every politician knows what to do we just can't figure out a way of getting re-elected if we do it. Mark Hennessy, Ireland Britain editor of the Irish Times and Barbara Scully, author and broadcaster. Thank you both very much. The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business. Saturday morning at nine on News Talk.